X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, August 25th. A good day to subscribe to The Local. A good day to share it with a friend. What isn't a good day to subscribe to The Local? Well, probably the days after you've already done it and already told all your friends. Today, back in the day, August 25th, 1609, Galileo demonstrated his telescope to the ruler of Venice. Galileo! Galileo's first telescope had eight times magnification, which today is weaker than a beginner's telescope made for kids. But even with this telescope, he was able to conclude that Jupiter had moons, that Venus waxed and waned in phases like the moon. This contradicted the Catholic Church's belief that the heavens revolved around the Earth. After showing his invention, he published The Starry Messenger, he presented his findings. It made him a household name. He was later named the mathematician and philosopher to the Medici family. However, his work also caught the attention of the Roman Inquisition. And in 1633, he was convicted of heresy. Oh, mama mia, mama mia. Mama mia, let me go. He lived the rest of his life under house arrest. He died nine years later in 1642. And today, back in the day, August 25th, 1944, Charles de Gaulle led a victory march down the Champs-Élysées, celebrating the end of four years of Nazi occupation. After the Nazis had captured Paris in 1940, they made France into a puppet state. But the free French movement and Charles de Gaulle continued to fight Nazi occupiers from abroad. And de Gaulle used the power of radio to encourage the people of France to resist Nazi occupation. In 1944, Allied forces closed in on Paris, and on August 18th, France resistance fighters came out of hiding, began openly fighting to reclaim their city. Around this time, General Eisenhower started to doubt the urgency of retaking the original French capital. He considered simply surrounding the city so the army's resources could be sent elsewhere. But by later in August, de Gaulle convinced Eisenhower to commit to the liberation of Paris, insisting that Nazi forces could be quickly defeated. The German general was under direct orders from Hitler to rig Paris's bridges and landmarks with explosives. If Allied forces were to reclaim Paris, Hitler wanted them to only find, and I'm quoting, a field of ruins. However, that German general, Dietrich von Schultz, disobeyed those orders, did not detonate the explosives, and the French 2nd Arbor Division reached the center of Paris. By August 25th, Paris was free from Nazi control. De Gaulle would go on to lead two French provisional governments until 1946, and he led France under the Fifth Republic from 1958 to 1969. Today on The Local, as we often do, we will start with your quick six news headlines. Barb Seaman from partner station KXRW brings his voices from Saturday's Save the Post Office protest. We'll also have an interview with Serena Boston Ashby, founder of Shatter LLC, supporting more women-identified leaders in running for office. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Four injured Portland protesters have filed a class action suit against the federal government. The lawsuit was filed against Chad Wolf, acting secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and 200 federal law enforcement officers, four people who were exposed to chemical agents or sustained injuries from impact munitions, did file that lawsuit on Monday. The lawsuit alleges excessive force against peaceful protesters. The allegation I'm quoting is that federal agents failed to employ de-escalation strategies or tactics to mitigate violence and protect the rights of peaceable assembly and protest. David Sugarman leads a team of six attorneys on the case, and we will continue to track it. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 220 new cases, three new deaths. We are now past 25,000 confirmed cases in Oregon, and the death toll, 420. The Health Authority also released its weekly testing report on Monday. It shows that as of August 22nd, 4.5% of the people in Oregon have been tested for the coronavirus. That is considerably lower than the national average of 9%. 
The week of August 16th, 24,000 people were tested and 1,233 people tested positive. That's about 5.1%. The total for that week is expected to rise as test results continue to be reported. Business groups are complaining about businesses leaving downtown due to the riots. Craig Goodman, the guy who had food carts and sold the food cart land to the entity that's building the Ritz-Carlton, is also the co-president of the Downtown Development Group. He wrote a letter to Mayor Ted Wheeler and the members of the Portland City Council. In it, he says that Daimler Chrysler, Airbnb, Banana Republic, Microsoft, Saucebox, and Google are leaving downtown Portland. Here's his quote. I would encourage each of you to walk around downtown Portland in the morning. Name the time. I'll give you a tour. You aren't sweeping the streets. Needles are all over the place. Garbage cans are broken and left open. Glass from car windows that have been broken is all over the streets, etc. Mayor Wheeler responded saying he opposes what the Proud Boys and those associated with them have done. He said he does not tolerate hate speech or the damage it has done to Portland. And here's the mayor's quote. White nationalists, particularly those coming to our city armed, threaten the safety of Portlanders and are not welcome here. Sunday night, a riot was declared shortly after 11 p.m. on Sunday, eventually leading to police deploying tear gas and arresting 23 people on the 87th night of political unrest in the city. Shout out to Coin News for the original reporting. The application period is open for the $62 million relief fund for black Oregonians. The money comes from the state's share of the Federal CARES Act, which aims to address historic inequalities as well as the heightened impact of the pandemic on communities of color. The money is being distributed to the Oregon CARES Fund for Black Relief and Resiliency, administered by the Council of Trust, a board of 11 black community leaders. Nonprofits The Contingent and the Black United Fund are distributing the relief money, and applicants are now being accepted at the Contingent's website. That's thecontingent.org. Organizations expect to review applications and make awards within the next three weeks. Applicants must live in the state of Oregon, prove economic harm caused by the pandemic. Individuals and families are eligible for between $1,000 and $3,000. We gotta cool it with the street racing. Now two people have been shot during a North Portland street racing event. The unregulated event took place in North Portland on Sunday night, and two men were shot on Ramsey Boulevard, a side road off of Lombard. The event apparently drew hundreds of spectators. Police have yet to release details about the circumstances of the shooting, They have learned that one of the men was heading to the hospital in a private car when an ambulance met them halfway. man made it to the hospital, was in stable condition. A second man had been shot in the leg, was taken to a hospital in a private car. He is expected to survive. Fast and Furious is a series of movies. You know what another movie is? It's Babe. It's about a pig who herds sheep. Let's start having babe contests, sheep herding contests on our COVID clear streets. Baran you, baran you. Portland's new Virginia Lopez house is now the first to offer transitional recovery for Latinas in Oregon. The first transitional addictive recovery house was born out of a triple partnership with initial funding from the Oregon Health Authority. Efforts were led by Bridges to Change along with 4D Recovery and the Northwest Instituto Latino. The Virginia Lopez House is the first in Portland to offer Spanish language recovery support programs specifically geared towards women. While the house provides shelter, it also helps connect residents to wraparound services such as Central City Concerns Puentes program. That provides drug and alcohol treatment, mental health care for Spanish speakers, among other things. The house currently has eight beds for a stay of six to nine weeks. Four residents have so far moved in. And there are no restrictions in place that would restrict cisgender Latinas, transgender women, and non-binary people from living as well there. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. It was Save the Post Office Saturday this past weekend. 
Thousands of people across the country gathered to demand that Congress shore up the U.S. Postal Service. According to MoveOn, the USPS revenue comes entirely from postage and services, not tax dollars. Revenue is expected to be down by 50% this year, so the agency may well run out of money within the next few months. MoveOn says that while Washington argues about how to support the post office, FedEx and UPS have already gotten stimulus money. People demonstrated in front of post offices around the Portland area and at two locations in Vancouver. KXRW's Barb Siemens tapped by one of them. Here's Barb with more. In downtown Vancouver, about 50 people gathered along Columbia Street outside the post office on Saturday morning. I'm a Vietnam veteran that has a heart condition from Agent Orange exposure. Okay, disabled vet under the VA. I get all my drugs through the VA mail system. Ed Carthel and his wife Linda came from the small town of Amboy in North Clark County. And it was averaging five to seven days from the time I put in my, my request for it to the time I got my drug. It's now up to almost two weeks. You know, and that's because of the changes they're making to the post service. When did it switch to two weeks? Was it recently or was About it? a month and a half, two months ago that it's really started, that I really started noticing it. This event was one of many held in the Portland, Vancouver area over the weekend. Mike Ellison organized you know, it. People are concerned that the Postal Service is going to be slowed down and people depend on the Postal Service for all kinds of things, you know, and I myself, I'm a 31-year survivor of two heart transplants and I get my immunosuppressants that I depend upon every day through the mail. You know, so there, you know, and there's millions of other people. And, you know, people in rural areas are especially dependent on the post office. People in um, low income, which of course are mostly, um, you know, black and brown people of color communities. And, you know, they're, they're more dependent upon the post office. Um, and, you know, so we really need to, you know, care about if those people are getting the services that they need. The protesters shared real concern about the conflicts of interest within the administration, the possibility that the intended outcome is to privatize the service, and the effect this situation will have on the elections. The common thread in all of that? The future of this country's democracy. This is a uh, constitutional issue, Section 1, or excuse me, Amendment 1, Section 8. There shall be established a postal office and postal roads, and to privatize that is not what the Constitution calls for. A sign says, save the USPS and let my dad vote. Let my dad vote. What would you like your kids to learn from this? Um, that their future is at stake and that everything that's happening right now directly affects them and that what, we're, what, what daddy's doing um, is to do whatever I can and try to protect their future. Everything's at stake right now and, and if we don't stand up as Americans, as our, as our civil liberties you know, allow us to do so, then what's next? The post office was, was founded because they, our founding fathers knew that open communications between people was the key to a democracy. And how do you destroy a democracy? You take away those key foundation issues that give us the ability 
to communicate. Well, what are they doing? They're, they're chipping away at a foundation stone of our democracy. I really think if we can support 53% of our U.S. budget on military, we should be able to support a tiny bit for the U.S. Postal Service that everybody uses every day. I believe the U.S. Post Office is a sacred privilege. It started before we were a country. It's something that, it's a service, not a business. It doesn't have to make every cent that it costs. It's here for the people, for all people, Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter. It's not political, it's, it's our sacred privilege. What about our elected Congresswoman from this area? What would you say to her if she was here today? Well, I would just say that it's as, as important for her to get in there and help Pelosi and pass this legislation and know that the people of her district are saying that this can't happen. This can't happen. She can't, she can't ignore the people. This is so important. We want to make sure that our legislators are seeing, you know, what the level of concern that we have and that they respond. What needs to happen in the next few weeks? I think everybody needs to get out and register to vote. Every single buddy needs to vote. Okay? And educate yourself on what you're voting for. From Vancouver, this is Barb Seaman for KXRW and X-Ray FM. Serena Boston-Ashby joins us next to discuss her new endeavor, Shatter LLC, galvanizing female-identified leadership towards elected roles. Here's Serena. Hi, Serena. Good morning. Good morning. Jefferson is here with me as well, and I know he wants to say hello. I just wanted to say hello. It's good to hear your voice. Congratulations on the new venture. Thank you. Great to hear your voice as well. Glad to be here. So, Serena, when did you know that this was the path your career was going to take? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think a bit of it was indirect, uh, knowing something in the subconscious. Um, I was really fortunate to be raised in a, in a, a very publicly engaged and community-engaged uh, family. My father was a local business leader. Um, my mother started her career working with people who were um, in the correction system and who were trying to transform from their legal history into careers and job development. And so I think it was something that was very much modeled in my in my home life and in my upbringing. Um, I would say I, I probably had a very political moment that was transformative for me in, in honing in my career. It was 2005 and I was working for SBI, which is the Center for Self-Enhancement, um, which is a, a local nonprofit that works with um, children, primarily African-American children, to provide education and social services. And I was having a difficult day. I had a family, a child that was um, specifically in a neglectful situation. And I wondered, you know, what were the laws and, and the policies that were either preventing this child from receiving the services that she deserved or were putting her family in a position where they couldn't provide for her? And I had just moved back from Georgia, from Atlanta, Georgia, where I had attended college and lived where I was a registered voter, 
and I realized I hadn't changed my registration over to um, Oregon. And I also thought to myself, I wonder what the Democratic Party in Oregon does. And I Googled them. Mm. And to be honest, the website was terrible. This was 2005. It was a very basic website. Frankly, it was something that my, my, my second grade daughter probably could have put together. And I called them. And the first person who answered the phone, I frankly said, you know, Democrats suck. We lost the 2004 election. Why should I remain a, a registered Democrat? And what would Democrats be able to do for the families that I serve? And about four or five weeks later, they offered me a job. And um, that's how I really started my career was by pointing out the, the gaps and and the connection between politics and real life people. You've been working to have women and people of color represented in politics throughout your career. You just gave us a glimpse into that. What difference does it make having a group like Shatter explicitly devoted to serving these communities? Sure. I think there's been a remarkable transformation in politics across this country. I mean, the political construct of today is extremely challenging as we head into uh, the November election. But one thing that's true is that, you know, the ability for everyday people to be connected to the political system, whether it's voter engagement or full-on lawmaking, is depending on is dependent upon the professionals that work in, in each of those categories, both on the political side, on the lawmaking side, and also the public affairs side. When there's diversity in that, specifically women, people of color, people who are LGBTQ, people who live with, um, with disabilities, anything of a, of, a, of a diverse background, when you have persons who are in that, that professional arena, it makes a huge difference. Um, they're able to have connection to communities. They're able to provide platforms where communities and people can be heard. Um, specifically, they you know, know the best strategies and tactics to either do communication, um, translation, community, you know, outreach, things of that nature. You know, for Shatter, you know, we're comprised of, of nine women that have very deep backgrounds, both in political strategy and public affairs. And we've either lived the issues that we're working on, or we have a close proximity with the best leaders, the best everyday people, or the best, you know, organizations that are working on these issues. So this is a new venture. Tell us about what your hopes are for Shatter. So I think there's a, a couple of things. I think for one, we certainly want to be um, a preeminent uh, firm where organizations, candidates, and leaders can turn to for their political and public affairs needs. Mm. I think for one, just being a competitive known entity in the public affairs and political arena nationally. I think secondly, you know, as we came together as nine women, we thought about our own careers. I mean, I shared my story about how I sort of cold called into the Democratic Party and they offered me a job, but that was not without a lot of pushback and a lot of twists and turns in my career, being young, being a woman, being a black person. And I think as we, you know, had a conversation about our career journeys, what we want for Shatter is to be a professional development incubator for people of diverse backgrounds to be able to start and develop their careers in American politics. Um, and so, you know, professional development, professional opportunity, exposure, and then just being able to enrich the pipeline and the leadership and the bench of, of political strategists in this country is certainly 
um, and intention in a bowl of ours. That's great. And how how will you all show up in this November election? Yeah. Well, right now we're very busy. <laughs> um, so each of us um, are also full-time partners at Hilltop Public Solutions. And so Shatter is essentially um, a firm associated um, in that way. So some of us are working um, on local races in our respective states. Many of us are working on ballot measures. As we go towards November, we'll be folding into specific voter engagement um, and protection campaigns, either in our respective states or nationally. Mm. Now, you've worked as the CEO of the Oregon Public Health Institute, as the director of the Portland African American Leadership Forum, and as a consultant for many different election campaigns. Are there any unique lessons you've learned working across those positions and others that you've mentioned that you're applying and thinking about applying uh, to the political realm? Such a great question. <laughs> yes. One, one thing I would share is that I have seen more and more the recognition that communities understand their issues better than consultants do. And that I have learned either through my time as a CEO at, at Oregon Public Health Institute, certainly at the Portland African American Leadership Forum, for sure working on various campaigns, that communities should be entrusted with guiding consultants and campaigns on the best way to connect with voters, mm. the best way to articulate issues. Um, and so whether it's designing platforms, it's um, such as, you know, one stance on policy issues, communication strategies, you know, door knocking and field engagement. It's very important for consultants and strategy firms to have a healthy respect and a sense of interdependency with community-based groups. I think we're moving past a time where there is sort of this um, hierarchical or I would say sort of inherently racist point of view that you know, community-based groups such as, you know, people of color, black indigenous people of color don't know anything about politics mm. and that general consultants and firms are there to educate them and to essentially utilize them for a short amount of time during election season. And that's that. What's been great in Oregon, and I certainly see nationally across the country, is that we see community-based groups that are self-determined. Mm. They are starting to do their own political analysis. They are building organizations and political action committees, and they are hiring and training staff to be politically involved, whether it's field organizers um, and, for example, political directors. And they're engaging in campaigns and election seasons in a way that I find very remarkable. So I think if there's any lesson that I'm bringing forth as we look at the, the general election for November, but I say certainly afterwards, because we are in my opinion, in rapidly changing political times, is that communities know best. Black, indigenous, people of color know best. People who are from LGBTQ backgrounds understand their community best. People who live with disabilities understand their experiences, their uh, their needs and their communities best. And I think that those are just of a few examples. Mm. There are many people who are feeling the urgency of now. We see it in Portland protests every night. We see it in uh, the Democratic National Convention that's happening this week and all the voices that are being represented. If folks are still looking for a way to get involved in the community, what are your recommendations for how to start? Hmm. I do think there is a sense of urgency right now. 
before the election. In Oregon, we do have a, a very significant privilege that we did not earn lightly, which is vote by mail. Mm. And that essentially has created a very safe, effective and efficient voting system for voters here in this state. That's not true across the country though, as because of the pandemic, many states are having to rapidly shift to vote by mail options. I think, you know, if you live in Oregon or you live outside of Oregon, finding a way to support, you know, get out the vote and voter protection is a really important and immediate way to get involved. I also just tell people just start at home, you know, become a precinct committee person, engage with your neighborhood association, think very deeply about the issues that impact you either every day, things that impact your children, your loved ones, your parents, your families. And, you know, start with those issues that are confronting you that either keep you awake at night or fire you up, put fire in your belly. Mm -hmm. Look for organizations that you can work with. I think it's also really important that in the sense of the American spirit, people start their own initiative. Community organizing and community gathering is, is a hallmark of our culture across all demographics, across all backgrounds. And there's never too late of a time to do that. Mm, I love that. What kind of changes would you like to see in Portland and Oregon's elected leadership in the next decade? Did you say what kind of changes? Yes. What kind of changes would you like to see in elected leadership, either in Portland or in the state over the next decade? Two things. I certainly would like to see more diversity. Mm. I'd like to see more diverse candidates running for office and then being supported in a much more successful way by institutions that tend to be in play um, during election season. So, you know, I think, you know, looking at, you know, enriching culturally specific political action committees before organizations to make sure that they have the funding and the infrastructure to put forth um, candidates that represent their communities so that they can have successful campaigns, successful bids for elected office. I certainly would love to see the increase of diversity of people running and being elected and retaining their leadership. Um, the second thing though, is something that I was thinking about recently is, is primaries. Um, I'm not interested in open primaries, so I'm not here to be provocative in that sense. But I think one of the things that's true um, is that you know, first time candidates, especially if they're women, people of color, people of other diverse backgrounds, when they're running in a primary, it's very difficult. Primary elections are a place where, you know, many institutions tend to not be involved um, because it's a primary and it's, you know, hard and challenging, quote unquote, when family runs against family. Speaking for myself, many, many years ago, I ran in a tough primary race. But what's really true is that if you're a first time candidate, especially if you come from a background where your community hasn't been represented in elected politics much, that primary season is such an integral part of you building yourself up so that if you're able to be successful and move on to a general election, you know, because either you, you, know, you have a runoff or an other party opponent, you know, you're coming into that based on however you were able to be successful in your primary. And so one thing that I will find Shatter participating in and having conversations about is to not count out the primary, to encourage institutions to be more specific and choosy and deliberate in supporting first-time and diverse candidates in their primary elections, because primaries very much matter. And when you think about that vision of getting more diverse candidates involved, 
What are the ways that Shatter will be supporting candidates and just the political infrastructure to help make that happen? So I think, um, great question. We're certainly interested in working with first-time candidates, diverse candidates, supporting and profiling their candidacies, understanding their strengths and where their opportunities are. We're glad to lend our services to campaign schools um, and also training either with institutions that are already training candidates. We're certainly able to, you know, provide uh, different types of, of trainings related to fund, you know, profiling, fundraising, um, and voter engagement strategy. So I think, you know, right off, we would like to lend our professional services to candidates and organizations that need it. Um, and to bring our distinct point of view and our experience about what it's like to run for office as a woman, what it's like to work and be present in the political mix as a black indigenous person of color, as, as somebody who's from a diverse background. Um, so I, I also think, you know, lastly, just lending our voice consistently in a very strong, unapologetic way about how American politics needs to be inclusive. It needs to be led by the people who have been historically counted out um, in our American narrative, and we certainly plan to, to continue to be vocal about that. Mm. Serena, where can folks find out more information about Shatter? Yeah, so we have different social media accounts. Um, so we're on LinkedIn, and you can also find us on Facebook. But we have a website where you can find um, our roster of consultants, our services, and our contact information. And that website is shatterllc.com. So that's S-H-A-T-T-E-R-L-L-C.com. Excellent. Thank you for that. And Jefferson, you wanted to say a few words? Oh, I, uh, yeah, I'm still here. I just wanted to say thank you so much for letting me listen in. And thanks for your work. Thanks. It's so good to hear your voice. We've known each other for a long time. Be, be well and good luck. I hope I'm, it's going to go great. Thanks so much. Appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, Serena, for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks again. Again, that's Serena Boston Ashby. She's a partner with Shatter LLC. You can find out more at shatterllc.com and on social media. Thanks to Barb and Serena for joining the local. Thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and for your five star review and for telling a friend. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.